depend fully on what Christ did on the cross. If that is not full and complete, then you have no righteousness with God. In Christ, the law is fulfilled. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 10, the entirety of Romans 10. So the title of the sermon is Beautiful Feet. So if you will just follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, it says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who are they talking about here? The Jews still, right? Still talking about the Jews. Paul didn't stop. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Just while we're right here, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? Everyone who believes. Very important. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because of this, if you confess, excuse me, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, what's it say everyone? Saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's where I got the title. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Three points, three only. It's good because you can mark your watch to when I start. And you're like, point number three, he's, he's almost there. 
Righteousness is only attained through fulfillment of the law. It's only attained through fulfillment of the law. Look what it says in the last verse here of this section. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what exactly does this mean? What are we talking about here? Because the Bible isn't just full of words for the sake of being full of words. What does it mean? Well, we know from the Old Testament forward, sin must be atoned for. It must be. And the interesting thing, track with me here in our culture for just a second, is humanity lives every day as though sin must be atoned for, at least in part. Now, I want you all to think about that for a second. Because how many times have you been offended by someone and they tried to do something to make it up for you? Or how many times have you offended someone and you tried to do something to make it up to them? We've all seen this image. Some of us have been in this place. Can I get an amen? Come on, men. Bear with me here. Have you been in this position? Women, have you been in this position? I'm sorry. I'm so- Look, the flowers I have for you. Doesn't this make everything better? What this is, is a picture for all of us of the atonement when we sin against someone. We mess up to our wife and we say, I'm sorry, here's some flowers. We want to atone for what we did. We want to make it better. All of humanity lives this truth out. Now, it's interesting because I talk to guys that don't ever buy their wives flowers, even on Valentine's Day, and uh, see them buying flowers. And I'm like, did you do something wrong? Yeah, they did. <laughs> you know, so this, this is true all over the place. And we know this is true. People say the wrong thing, and rather than come and apologize, they think they need to do something to make it up to us. So they, you know, they, they do these silly things and say these silly things. I, I think about that movie just a few years ago. I don't remember which one it was, but the guy sprays something in the guy's eyes, and he says, here, let me make it better, and he sprays himself in the eyes. We're trying to make things better. We're trying to atone for our own sin. And we do this all the time. This is something you'll see no matter where you go. Third world countries, still the same thing. When they do something wrong and they know it, their conscience is seared. When they feel that prick of their conscience, then they try to do something to make it better. So what this verse is saying is, in Christ, the law is fulfilled. And righteousness is based completely on the merit of Christ. So in the Old Testament... You would go and you would purchase an animal. Or you'd take one from your own flock. And often this animal would not just be something, if this is from your flock, this is not just another sheep. Pick that one. What do we know from the Old Testament? That animal had to be flawless. Right? So think of your collection of things you have. Your favorite thing. You're not going to try to give away that one. You're going to try some way to sneak and give away the other one. This is exactly what we see in the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, people are bringing sick sheep to God to try to atone for their sin. They're trying to bring the worst of their flock and pretend like they're better. So, sin must be atoned for. It must be. And as we look through the Old Testament, we see these people bringing these animals. So if you bring an animal... To be sacrificed, if you didn't purchase it at the temple, it's very likely that that animal was born under your care. 
And this doesn't matter what you do. You could have been a carpenter. You're raising up your own meat. You bring an animal that you saw born, that you took care of, that perhaps was sick at one time, and, and you nursed it back to health. Now you are bringing this animal to the priest. You lay your hand on top of the animal's head. The priest lays his hand on top of your hand. And then he grabs the knife while your hand also clasps his hand with a knife. And you drain the blood out of the animal on the altar. This makes atonement for sin. Until you get down to the bottom of the altar and you have a thought. Or you say the wrong thing, think the wrong thing, or get back home, do the wrong thing. And then sin needs to be atoned for again. This is the pattern that we want to live in this life. Everyone struggles with the idea of our bill being paid for by someone else. Everyone does. If you go somewhere and someone pays it forward, you know, you go to McDonald's or you go to Dunkin' Donuts and the person says, the person ahead of you just paid for your bill. All of a sudden, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, now I want to pay for someone else's bill, right? We know how this works. Because you don't feel right about just leaving that alone. You want to make sure that you take care the same way other people did. Because we want to do things to be right. Christianity does not work that way. We need to completely depend fully on what Christ did on the cross. If that is not full and complete, then you have no righteousness with God. In Christ, the law is fulfilled. That means there's not one thing you or I can say, do, think, believe that can change what Christ did on the cross. We cannot, in our person, take Christ's place with our deeds. We do good things because we're Christians, not to earn anything. Righteousness is based completely on the merit of Christ. So it's not like we're going to get to the throne and God's going to say, boy, you really read a lot of good books. I'm going to let you in because of that. Ain't happening. Amen? Not happening. You get to the throne, it's Christ or it's nothing. And everything will come to light. Our deeds will be exposed. So point number two, you can't save yourself. And we want to. We want to. Because we were designed as human beings with the desire to work. Understand that before the fall, Adam was put in the garden with work to do. Yes, labor is not a condition of the fall. The pain and toil and struggle of labor is a condition of the fall. But working, working is a good thing. God put Adam in the garden. He was to work. That was a very good thing. He was to keep the garden. He was to till it. He was to work it. That was his job. But we always want to be able to save ourselves because we have this ingrained in us that we are to work because we're working people. We're working beings. But though we can't save ourselves, faith is active and salvation is not passive. And I spoke about this a couple weeks ago as we've been studying through these passages. Had a few very good conversations about this. Faith is active. And salvation is not passive. So we need to understand this. Christianity has no neutral. There's no point when you are a Christian where you can just pop it in a neutral and coast. Why? Because most of the time, we're driving uphill. You put in neutral, you're going to back into somebody. Amen? 
Faith is active, and salvation is not passive. Look at the passage here. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. So we talked about this last week. Some people believe that the Jews will be saved simply because they're Jews. That's not what the Bible says. We will all be saved the same way, by the merit of Christ, or we won't be saved. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Stop there just for a second. How is one saved? How can we be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are some that may, may say, may ask, hey, doesn't that mean that we are responsible for our own salvation? Again, we're stuck in the argument between Arminianism and Calvinism. Hey, doesn't this mean that we're responsible for our own salvation? It's all on me to believe? The answer? All God's people said, no, not at all. What's John 6.44 say? No one can, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We come to Christ through the drawing because God draws us through Christ to himself. The Father draws, all right? He initiates. He's the one that calls us to salvation and then we do what? We respond. The Father draws and we respond so once again i need to throw this out there we talk about sovereignty and we talk about free will the bible teaches both you cannot stand on one side or the other without erring so there are people that say that salvation is completely and totally and entirely only on god and there are some people that say we can take our salvation or we can give our salvation away that's not the way the bible reads The Bible says that God is completely and totally sovereign. Amen? The Bible says that God is completely and totally sovereign. Amen? The Bible also says that we are responsible to believe. Amen? So not only is there sovereignty, there's also responsibility on our part. So if this is true, then this means evangelism is important. If all it is is God just operating us all like we're chess pieces, like we're pawns on a chessboard, then evangelism makes no sense. If all it is is God acting completely and totally in his sovereignty and never allowing us to make any decisions, then why pray? Why do we ask God to intervene on behalf of people with cancer, people who are fighting for their lives, or, or pr- for protection for people. If it's all completely, entirely, and totally on God, then why pray? And on the, on the other side of the spectrum, if it's all completely and totally and entirely dependent upon only us, why pray? Why ask God to be involved if it's only our choice, if it's only our will, only our decision? But the Bible tells us to pray. The Bible also tells us to evangelize. 
Evangelism is important because we have a responsibility to respond, as Charles Spurgeon said, and at the same time, God is completely and totally in control. If you are having trouble understanding this and you want more on this, I highly recommend the book Sovereignty and, excuse me, the Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, I believe it's called, by J.I. Packer. I have a copy if you want to borrow it. It's like 90 pages. Definitely worth your time. Evangelism is important. Romans 10, 14 through 17 says this, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? You see, they have to believe in order to call. And how are they to believe on him whom they've never heard? So in order for us to believe, we need to hear of Christ. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, we see something has to happen here for this stuff to work. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's not just talking about pastors. Although pastors appreciate the high view of pastor, um, I am a sheep like everyone else. Pastors do not, we're not priests all right. The Bible says that all believers are priests. When we deify the role of pastor, we do harm to the gospel and harm to the church. Can I get an amen? And also, when the pastor messes up and sins, then we've done nothing but harm the gospel. We've harmed witness. When we deify a person and say, this is the one that is always right, and this is the one that will never let us down, we do damage to the gospel to the witness of the gospel, excuse me, when people see that happen. So understand, the commands of the Bible, this isn't ever a pastor standing up in a pulpit or lectern preaching to everyone. He also always ought to be preaching to himself. The job of evangelism is never, has never, and will never be simply the job of a pastor. It's anyone who preaches the gospel the good news. Anyone. You know, it's amazing. The Great Commission, which many people can quote from the King James Version of the Bible because we've heard it so much. Somehow in our minds, we simply believe in today's day and age that that's simply the job of the apologist or the job of the pastor to go and share the gospel. So we pray for people that we're related to for those that are not saved and those that we wish would just wake up and, and come to faith in Christ. But often we're unwilling to do any of the work, to ask any of the hard questions. And I'm not talking about the hard questions like, well, have you read the book of John? That type of evangelism is too simple, and it rarely works. For a good book on evangelism, I recommend reading Evangelism by Jerem Bars is the guy's name. It's simply titled Evangelism. He had a smaller one called Evangelism According to Jesus. Really, really great. In that, he talks about the need for evangelism today and how to do it. It's simple conversations. And as good of a job as um, the way the master does with Ray Comfort, I love that man. I appreciate what he does so much. We see in his videos that it doesn't always work that way. So um, there is a relational aspect in sharing the gospel that we need to have most of the time. Most of the time, 
the person that you're praying for to be saved has not yet heard it from you. You're the one that's established and developed that relationship with them, not others. So when we ask for an evangelist to come to the area, God will use that. God can use that. God does use that. But God does not always use that as the only means. Most often, the closest person that is a Christian to that person will be the one that waters the seed and gets to see it grow. We have been commissioned to carry this message to the ends of the earth. And we need to be serious about the gospel. Why? Because God is. This is the message that God is going to use to redeem and save humanity. Simply believing on the work that his son Jesus did, confessing with our mouth that he is Lord, and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. This message is so important. It's so vital, not only to your faith and mine, but it's vital to the world that is dying around us. We need to be serious about the gospel. Why? Because God is. And again, we have been commissioned to carry this message to the ends of the earth. And many of us honestly struggle to carry this message to the end of our sofa. Romans 10, 18 through 21 says this, But I ask, how, excuse me, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So in the context, we are talking about the Jews here. We're thinking about the Jews. Paul already said in the last chapter, if he could, he would give up his own salvation that the Jews could be saved. Say, but did they not hear? No, they heard the message. And many of them reject it. And the fact is, God is saving Gentiles, and through his saving Gentiles has been bringing many, many to faith for centuries. See, it's simply because the Jews see that God is saving Gentiles that stirs their affections that makes them jealous. And the truth is, no one will be saved apart from Christ. We all know people that desperately, desperately need the gospel. When you walk out these doors this afternoon, you are going to walk out onto the street, and you are going to run into people all over the place. Some will be fighting with their spouses, some will have troubles that you probably don't see. And I fully believe with my whole heart, and I pray you do too, that every single answer they need is from this message. Why are husbands fighting with wives? And why is fighting with husbands? Because they're not doing what they've been called to do. Why aren't they doing what they've been called to do? Because they've never heard it. 
They've heard it and rejected it, and and they need to hear it again. Once the gospel takes root, that little mustard seed spreads out. It will be the largest tree in the garden. The gospel is not just this simple can of paint we throw over everything, and all of a sudden everything's better. It's a mustard seed. Many of us planted gardens this year. Some seeds grow really, really quickly. Some of us had zucchinis this year that we thought were weeds because they would not stop growing. We were actually pulling them out. Then there are those other seeds you plant. You just wonder if they'll ever sprout. And then finally they do. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. This is what the gospel is. You wonder if the seeds you plant will ever grow. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's nothing you or I can add to that. We need to focus our attention completely on the fact that apart from Christ, no one will be saved. So, so, again, I preach to myself too. Do not be intimidated by your call to share the gospel. Do not be intimidated by your call to share the gospel. If you are in Christ, you believe the gospel has power to save because you're saved. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You know that it has the power to save because you have been saved. Because in Christ, you have been saved. So does it not also have the power to save those you know and love? One of the most difficult problems that we have as Christians is we have been taught for a long time The way to share the message of the gospel is to sit down and to offer the prayer of salvation. We look on Mount Carmel, and there we see Elijah. And how many people are on Elijah's side? Hold up the universal sign. Zero. He says, I, Lord, I only myself am left. So when Elijah is in Israel, how many prophets are with him? None. It's him. Versus thousands of prophets of Baal and Asherim. And all of Israel has sold themselves to the worldview that somehow because their king has brought in this god, this Baal, that now they're only going to have male kids and they're going to have lots of prosperity and their plants are going to grow. And Elijah stands up and says, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. Well, when you have a king that stands up and preaches to a people that they are going to be prosperous because their crops are going to grow, and then you have a poor man from a place that none of us can point out on a map without seeing a question mark after it, say, well, it's not going to rain. The plants are going to grow, but without rain, this is going to take some God. And for a few years, there's a famine. And when Elijah stands on top of the mountain, he does not start off his entire message by saying, you're all stupid for believing this. What's he say? Bring your God out. Let's see him at work. You pick a bull, I'll pick a bull. You build a fire, I'll build a fire. And what Elijah does is so beautiful in that moment. They take their wood, the uh, the prophets of Baal and Asherim, and they build this beautiful altar, and it's ready to go. They have their, their cow ready, and they put it on there. And then Elijah goes to build his altar, 
and he repairs an altar that was already there, which is an interesting detail from that story. And then he goes and digs a trench around it, puts his wood on, puts his bull on, and then he says, start bringing water. Well, any of us in here know that you cannot burn wet things. Can I get an amen? Won't work. Bring water. Bring water. And the prophets of Baal stand out there and Baal, Baal, answer us with fire, answer us with fire, answer us. Come down upon our, our altar. Bring fire down. Elijah says, maybe he can't hear you. Speak up. They start cutting themselves with swords to let their blood out. Please, Baal, hear us, answer us, come to us. No answer. Elijah says, maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> Finally, after a long time, till they're brought to shame because of no answer, Elijah kneels down and he prays. And in that moment, God answers. And the fire comes down. It consumes the bull, the wood, and licks up the water from the trench. And in that very moment, you and I see evangelism at work. Is it simply sitting down and saying, you're a sinner, would you please pray this prayer? No. What we really need to do is help people see where they're actually viewing the world from. Because as many testimonies will tell us, people had to get to the end of the rope before they finally said, yes, I surrender all to Christ. They had to get to the end of the rope where they saw what they're doing is not working and the plan they have will not work, will not save them. And in the end, all of Israel who is there at that mountainside, the scriptures say all of Israel is there, says what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In that moment, they see this is fake. For evangelism to work, we need to present the person's worldview as they see the world. And that's the difficult work. And that's why I said before, and I continue to say, it has to be through our personal relationships. And within that moment, all you need to do is start throwing out gospel truths. Well, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? And before you know it, people are saying, you know, actually what you say, though I don't necessarily believe it, is starting to make a lot of sense. So you and I need to fear not. Because the power is not in what we do and what we say and we think that it is too often. It's in the message itself. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. The Jew first and also the Greek. We also need to take heart and, and find some comfort in the fact that you and I do not add or take away one ounce of the power of the gospel. When finally that takes root... There's nothing you or I can do to slow it down. It's like a freight train We're trying to stop the wind. We cannot do it. So as we consider the beautiful feet, we're talking about yours and mine, those that will carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, starting with our sofas. Let's pray.